no dancing today. Uh, good morning. My name is Rich Lynn. I'm an elder here at Jacob's Well, and I have the privilege this morning of leading us through a study of uh, Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Now, uh, I'll admit that preparing today was uh, challenging uh, because, well, first, words and communication aren't my uh, forte. I do much better with numbers and pictures and diagrams and, and charts and such, such. So the biggest challenge is taking the, you know, what I studied and the thoughts and getting them to come out and, and put down paper and, and to come out in a coherent way. And so I, I hope that, uh, you know, I pray that, that that's what happens today. But, um, and so it takes, it takes some time for me. It took about, you know, so I've been kind of thinking about the verses and, and studying for about a month. And during this time, uh, just during this past month, we've just come face to face with some seemingly, it's a seemingly constant string of national and international uh, tragedies. And we've had to, to grapple with that. Um, add that, uh, you know, this month has also been one of the busiest seasons for, for our family, for myself with work, and it kind of feels like we're living in 2019 with 2022 challenges. And so after two, two years, two more, two plus years of living in a pandemic, uh, and life seems to be speeding up more than slowing down, I found that these verses in Philippians are just super relevant, super helpful, um, and uh, and I hope that you know you will be encouraged and and challenged by them. And so I will pray before we get started. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, speak to us today. Encourage us and lift us up in a time where we see senseless tragedies in our society and in the world. We pray for the parents and the children and the families of all those affected by the mass shootings this week and the previous week before. Um, you tell us that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And so we mourn with and we pray for all those who are mourning and suffering through this awful time. And we pray for our country. We see these senseless violence acts of violence and the death of children, and we know that, that that should not be, and we know that something needs to change, and we pray that you would bring it about. We pray that ultimately, also that the human heart needs changing, and our hearts need to be changed. And so we look to your word uh, to change our hearts and guide us on how to live uh, in this broken and suffering world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So upon initial reading of, of these verses, we kind of feel like Paul is rambling a little bit. It uh, sounds like some random thoughts he quickly needs to get out there. Uh, kind of like you know, in high school or in college when you let a friend borrow your car. Before they drive off, you got to tell them all these things that they need to know about it before, before they drive it. You know, like, oh, that, the light on the dash, just, just ignore that. That's been there, been there forever. Or like, you know, you got to lift the back handle, you gotta lift it and then pull, otherwise you, you know, won't open. Um, you know, I've, yeah, we've all driven some cars like that. But if you study the passage, you'll see that it's not as random as it first uh, initial reading. 
On each of the verses, Paul's reminding the readers that of topics that he's already covered previously in the letter. And so as he nears the conclusion, he's encouraging the Philippian church now, take, take what I've said and live it out. And so we start with verse 4. Uh, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So what this reminded me of, if you've grown up in the church, I think that verse may uh, remind you of a tune, like a, a musical melody. I see some nods there. Uh, it goes, I want to sing. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And then the, oh, there's a clap. I forgot about the clap. Thank you. And then the children's choir comes in. Rejoice, rejoice. Uh, it's a simple verse, and Paul finds the need to say it twice here. And, you know, because we just need those extra reminders. A few, like uh, I think a pre previous chapter, chapter 3, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he continues on by saying, and it's a paraphrase, I paraphrase. I've said the same thing over and over, and that's okay. He says, it's no trouble for me, and it's okay for you to keep hearing it repeatedly. Pastor Scott preached on this a few weeks ago. And sometimes as people of God, we just need to be reminded. Uh, we need to be reminded from God's word, from each other, over and over again of certain truths. And this is one of them. And so to rejoice means to be glad, means to delight in and find joy in. And so when we rejoice in the Lord, we find gladness, we find joy and delight in God and who he is. And so I think the, the challenging part to that is the always part, right? Really? Always? All the time? So the, yeah, it's challenging, and I think there's two, there's two challenges there. First, we have so many alternatives to find joy in, right, in our, in our lives. Not all bad things, of course, but the sheer number of options that in our modern day life that is available to us to find joy. Uh, if you compare that to someone living in first century Rome who's reading this uh, for the first time, like the comparison is mind boggling, what we have available to us. Uh, there, did, you know that, did you know that there are 449,000 mobile gaming apps on the Google Play Store? And there's even more in the Apple Play. Uh, there's estimated to be over 1 million games. And so if you're a parent, right now you probably have half of those downloaded on your phone. Uh, my son is notorious. He's eight. He's notorious for doing this. He'll ask, you know, Dad, can I play a game on your phone? So I say, yeah, okay. And then I get it back, and there's three or four other ones on there. And I'm like, what is this? What is this junk? And then an hour later, I'm playing it. <laughs> How'd that happen? Uh, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with games, of course. Uh, it's just an example of that we live in a world, we live in a society where, you know, so much is trying to grab our attention. And and trying to get, get us to, to uh, move on to the next thing or to the new thing. And there's so many opportunities to crowd out that, 
uh, ability to, you know, both in time and, and mental and emotional capacity to rejoice in the Lord and to be glad and find our joy in Jesus. And so we need to hear it over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Second, there's, there are times, second challenge, there are times in life where we just find a lack of desire to rejoice in the Lord. This is especially challenging when times are difficult, when you face trials or, or you're in grief. Uh, you know, in these times we need to be reminded because rejoicing, well, rejoicing in the Lord and grief and lament and sadness, they are not mutually exclusive. They can exist together. And we see that so much in the book of Psalms. Uh, some, in, in many Psalms, we, we read and we see the, uh, the author would jump from expressions of sorrow and, uh, and, and just hopelessness. And then within the same Psalm, he will express hope and praise in God. And sometimes they jump back and forth. And so uh, I want to put up a quote here. No, uh, so it's a, from a commentary about Philippians, and I think it, it speaks uh, very well to this. It says, Joy is what results when one is able to recognize the presence and movement of God in specific circumstances. Such joy is focused not on the achievement, but on the recognition of God's abiding presence, even in the midst of suffering. I love that. Rejoicing in the Lord is the recognition of God's abiding presence, even in the midst of suffering. And in, this, in there it says, such joy is focused not on the achievement, meaning that uh, refer, uh, like achieving joy is not the end goal. The joy is actually the recognition of God's abiding presence. And so we remember, even in sadness and in grief, that, uh, that God's presence is there, and we tap into that. In verse 5, it says, Let your, reasonableness, ah, sorry, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So this word translated as reasonable, reason, I can't even say it. Reasonableness is kind of like a word salad. Uh, it's, you know, it has, it's a meaning that when translated in English, the words can't, the, the individual words can't capture them on their own. So you see in different, different versions, uh, translations of the Bible, some of them will say, let your gentleness be known to everyone, or let your moderation be known to every, anyone, or everyone. And so the word, you know, it's, the definition is kind of like, it, it means gentle or considerate of others and able to be reasoned with. So Paul is basically saying, live your life humbly in a way where you are considerate to the needs of others. And uh, he said something similar back in chapter 2, uh, earlier in the letter. Uh, it says in verse three, 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
And I think it's interesting that Paul says that you want, we want to let it be known to everyone. So, you know, how do we let it be known to everyone? We could either announce it, like, hey, you know, I'm gentle. Or it's something that's lived outwardly, that's, that's obvious, that is observed by others. And so uh, there's a passage in James that I think paints a very uh, comprehensive picture of how we are to live this out. So put it up in the scrolly Bible. It says, uh, James 3, uh, sorry. I, I may have missed, sorry, Mike. It's actually James 3, 13 to 18. And that one's not relevant at all to what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but, it, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and then we see here gentle, that's the same word, reasonableness, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In a harvest of righteousness, righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I, I, like, I like this verse. It's, uh, it kind of expands on, on that word reasonableness. What is reasonableness? And what accompanies it? You see in 17, just list, a list of, of what it is. Peaceable, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so that's a challenge to us. You know, when, when someone in the outside world, someone observes our life, they, someone from outside observes our church, or the church in general, is that what they see? Is that what we are known by? Uh, so this past week, uh, there was a report uh, that came out about the Southern Baptist Convention. Many of you may have heard this. And the report revealed that you know, the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest denominations, church denominations in America, uh, and it, it revealed that they had grievously mishandled hundreds of instances of alleged sexual abuse in their churches and over a span of two decades. Uh, the report showed that top leaders within the denomination either ignored stonewalled or denigrated those who reported instances of abuse or, or, or that way towards survivors of sexual abuse within the church. And they sought first to protect the liability of the denomination and their own reputations rather than hold those who perpetrated these abuses to account. Uh, the news is hor horrific and shocking, but unfortunately not new. And we have seen this over the past few years recurring and coming up over and over. Um, and as I was reading through articles about the report, I kept thinking about the passage in James uh, and just how, how, how much the American church has fallen short of what is 
portray what is uh, was said in in the in this passage and and I pray and we should pray together that our church and in God's church in general that um, that when those from the outside they look in they see Philippians 4 or 5 they see James 3 and you know I pray that and we pray together that we would be gentle and consider the needs of others we would listen when, uh, and consider the needs of others over our own, that we would listen uh, to, uh, and listen and stand up for victims of abuse and protect those who are vulnerable. I pray that we would turn away from jealousy and selfish ambition, that we turn away from the leer of power and political influence at the expense of mercy, impartiality, and sincerity. I pray that you know, and it's a challenge for us to be peaceable and open to reason with one another. Uh, Eric, there's a, uh, Eric Little is a Scottish Olympian in the 1920s. And uh, he was, his life was portrayed in a movie in 1981. I believe it won an Academy Award. Uh, and he was famous for refusing to run on race on Sundays. And so the 100-meter dash was his event, and, and it was scheduled in, in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. It was, the races were scheduled for Sunday, where there are some races. And so he refused to run in them. He, he, uh, it was his conviction that it was the Lord's Day, and he would not run. And so he, he, refu uh, so he didn't compete. And that was his event. That's what he trained for. That was what he was good at. He was fast. And so he, he didn't do it. A teammate, I guess, I mean, felt bad and let him have his spot for the 400 meters, which was not a run on Sunday, so he could actually compete. And so it wasn't what he, uh, you know, it wasn't his, what he was good at. Uh, and it wasn't what he normally competed in. And it was a long shot to win, but he won. He won the gold for his country, for Scotland. And, and, and that's what the movie was about. Uh, everyone see it? Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 That's my last musical tune today, I promise. And so uh, Li Eric Little, he was, a, he was a national hero. He was beloved by all of Scotland. And uh, gold medalist. Uh, but in, I think, two years later, he walked away from, from his racing career. Uh, and uh, he was in, still in his prime, and he walked away because he, he, went, he wanted to follow in his, his parents' footsteps uh, uh, to be missionaries in China. And so uh, while, while in China in 1943, uh, during the Japanese invasion and occupation of the country, uh, Eric Little ended up in an internment camp. And he was there for, for the two years and turned out to be the last two years of his life. And while in the camp, there was a, a child there. His, his name is Dr. David Mitchell. He wasn't a doctor then. Yeah, obviously, he became a doctor later. He says, uh, not only did Eric Little organize sports and recreation through his time in the internment camp, he helped many people through teaching and tutoring. He gave special care to the older people, the weak and the ill, to whom the conditions in, in the camp were very trying. 
He was always involved in the Christian meetings, which were part of camp life. Despite the squalor of the open cesspools, rats, flies, and disease in the crowded camp, life took on a very normal routine. Though without the faithful and cheerful support of Eric Little, many people would never have been able to manage. None of us will ever forget this man who is totally committed to putting God first, a man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. I thought that was an amazing picture of these passages embodied in the life of, of Eric Little. He put aside his own glory and ambitions and followed God, called to serve others, and, uh, and he stayed. He put himself in harm's way for the good of others when he, he had the opportunity to escape the country. While in the camp, in the midst of great suffering, he was gentle and considerate to the needs of, of those around him, the elderly, the weak, and the children. And uh, the last thing uh, I'm going to read about him, another child who was in the camp said that Eric would serve as a referee for the children playing sports in the camp, as was, as was consistent with his life, would not serve as referee on Sundays. But without his presence there on Sundays, the children would get in fights and draw the negative attention of the camp guards. And so after much consideration, he decided he would continue to referee and oversee the children, even on Sundays. So it's reasonableness, right? He held on to that principle all of his, all of his life, of, not, of keeping Sunday uh, the Lord's Day. You know, he's willing to throw away a chance at gold and glory to hold on to that. But when it came to the benefit and the good of others, of the children in the, in the camp, he was able to set that aside. And so, you know, the last couple years of Eric Little's life, you know, didn't make it into a movie, but it was just as impactful. And so verse 6, back it, up. it says, uh, verse 6 says, The Lord is at hand. Uh, you know, that basic saying, the Lord is near, or the Lord is coming. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we see a very similar verse in Matthew 6, uh, when Jesus teaches about anxiety and worry. And you may be familiar, familiar with them, uh, you know, says there, uh, Jesus says, there, therefore, there I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So I'm going to actually read, try to, I want to say this right. Okay, now, uh, you know, these, these verses, the Bible speaks a lot about worry and anxiety. Now, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I don't believe I need to be an expert <clears throat> when, uh, to say that we can break up anxiety uh, to do two general categories. There's, uh, there's an anxious, anxiousness of the mind, you know, the clinical type uh, the, that you know, many of you here even struggle with, you know, either medically, uh, you know, medically diagnosed anxiety or depression uh, that can be helped with counseling or medication. 
And then there's the anxiousness of the heart, uh, the kind of worries that all of us have that are rooted in just life lived in this world. And so Christians and, and the church, historically, we've looked at the teachings of Jesus and what the Bible says about worry and anxiety, and we've used them to push aside or shun the clinical side, the psychological side. Because according to the Bible, anxiousness is an issue of faith and of the heart. And so they push away helpful solutions like counseling, like medication, and they see it as worldly remedies. And in, in doing so, causing people who do struggle to not get the help that they need, and even to the extreme of doubting their faith in God, because they think that um, you know, just having more faith, uh, believing in God more, they'd be able to pull themselves out. And on the other end of the spectrum, we also have a tendency to discount the power of the word of God, the words of Jesus, and the promises of God, and what they can offer to the clinical and medical side of anxiety, and the power it can have over our minds, as well as the heart. And so those who, for those who, who as, we, as we talk about worry and anxiety, for, for those who struggle with, with uh, anxiousness, or depression, uh, just hear that you know, Bible, the Bible's teaching is not an in indictment on your faith. Uh, it's a motivator. It's, not, not, uh, it's supposed to motivate you not only to continue pursuing the health and physical nature of your worry, but also to continually remind you to bring those anxieties before the Lord and know that he's ultimately the source of real and lasting peace. And so for those who don't struggle with that particular uh, side of anxiety, uh, we, we still have worries, right? We still, we still worry. We have hearts that are prone to worry. You know, we have, we have job responsibilities that may be stressful. We have human beings we need to take care of. Uh, we have our health and well-being worried about, and, and there's just so many unknowns in the world, and they, and they weigh on our hearts and our minds. Um, there's a graphic, a chart. I like charts. So in an annual Harris poll called Stress in America, and this was done in March, and so this is even before you know, what we've just seen the past couple weeks with the, with the mass shootings. It found that more adults rated inflation in the Russia-Ukraine situation as major stressors than any other issue asked about in the 15-year history of the poll. So it says 87% each. I'm just going to read a couple other excerpts about you know, the survey and what they found. It says, about 63% of Americans said their life has been forever changed by the pandemic. The survey revealed continued hardships for, for vulnerable groups widespread grief and a sense of loss, concerns for children's development among parents, and unhealthy coping habits, such as increased drinking and sedentary behavior. Is it on there? No, okay. Uh, money stress is also at an all-time high, even compared to recent surveys in the past year. About 65% of adults in the recent poll said that money was a significant source of stress. And 
Lastly, American adults also reported feeling emotionally overwhelmed and fatigued, with 87% agreeing that it feels like there has been a constant stream of crises without a break over the last two years. That's a lot. Uh, it's, it's real, it's out there, and uh, a lot of people are feeling this right now. And you can kind of see it, you kind of sense it in the world around us, right? Uh, back in February, I uh, shared online an article and a video, uh, you know, it, it was trending in social media. There was a massive 40-person brawl at a Golden Corral, not, not too far south of here, uh, in, in Pennsylvania. There's no joke, there's a video of it. I mean, like, it was like punches and food thrown, chairs are being thrown, there are people picking up kids' high chairs and just using them as weapons, swinging them around. It was nuts. It was insane. And, uh, you know, how, how did the, this brawl start? Uh, well, it was over steak. Uh, so reports that uh, were either that the restaurant ran out of steak or uh, somebody was upset that another person got their steak order before they did. That seems like a new thing, right? I, I, don't, I don't think I've heard that, people fighting over steak. Uh, but, you know, we, it's kind of funny, we laugh a little bit. But I think what that illustrates is just like how on edge so many people are. Like, you could get set off by, you know, not getting your steak on time. Um, and if you look through the poll, you know, what is, you know, what is causing the most anxiety in this country? And almost all of them are, are just are like really large-scale, complex problems. Um, and, and a lot of it's like really beyond our control to, to, to do, do much about. Um, unless, you know, we have some, uh, you know, high-ranking government officials here or, or dictators. Um, you know, a lot of these things, they're not going to go away tomorrow. Uh, and we don't know when wars will, will end. We don't know if we're going to be faced with violence, you know, in our, in our own lives. And, uh, and the solutions are, are, are complex. And so you add all those in and you, you bundle in, you know, health and uh, stressful job situation and relational challenges. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not a surprise that so many are, are close to a breaking point. And so, uh, you know, when we're left with few options, when people are left with few options to control outcomes, you know, we, we tend to grasp at whatever we can control. And then it leaves us o emotionally overwhelmed, fatigued, or hopeless. So, verse 6, uh, verse 6 offers a different way. It says, do not be anxious. The end. All right. When has that ever been a helpful response? Uh, you know, my, my wife absolutely loves it when I say, "Yeah, just stop worrying." You know, stop stop worrying. And we've been married 16 years. Uh, Friday, Friday is 16 years. Yeah. But uh, some you know somehow those words just still come out in my mouth. I, I don't care. I'm trying. I'm trying. No, you know that's not it. That's not it. You know, it's not don't be anxious, period. Uh, but, you know, it says don't, do not be anxious, but in everything, a few steps. And we, we 
pray. In prayer, communicate with God, return to him. In prayer, in supplication with thanksgiving. Now, supplication means to earnestly and humbly ask, like almost begging. So we ask God. We turn to him and, with, uh, and, and, and uh, make a request of him. But also it says, in a supplication with thanksgiving. That's a beautiful phrase. Because in asking and begging God to help us, we are also uh, acknowledging that, uh, you know, we, are, we, we also have to be thankful. Uh, we acknowledge that God is loving, kind, and generous, and we're, we're th- we have to be thankful for what he has already done and what he can do. So it's not just asking, but it's asking with thanksgiving. And finally, we make our requests known to God. We go to him with the needs and wants and our worries. Not too long ago, we did a series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, in Matthew 6, 8, uh, Jesus, uh, before he talks about you know, t- teaching us how to pray, he says that for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so here, when we bring our request to God, it's not something that he doesn't already know, obviously. Uh, we are... It's like when we bring our request to God, we are remembering that He is near to us, that He listens. And so you see, in the you know, before He says, "Do not be anxious," He says, "The Lord is at hand; the Lord is near." And so this is that's faith. Faith, faith is uh, remembering that God is near to us and being able to bring our request to Him and knowing that He listens. You know, the lack of faith. Uh, you know, is not the anxiousness itself. You know, the lack of faith is when we do not bring those worries to God who is there and who is listening. And we also forget to bring our request to him because we forget that we have Jesus. We, we have Jesus who knows what it is to worry. He knows stress. He, he has lived it. And he is with us in those deepest, darkest moments when we are emotionally fatigued or overwhelmed or feeling hopeless. There's a, a scene in the movie Finding Nemo, and I know this movie very well because it's on loop in our van. We have a DVD player, and just like, I probably listened to it like uh, 20 times. Uh, there's a scene where, uh, has anyone seen it? I'm going to spoil something. It's pretty old. If you haven't seen it, well, it's not oh, it's too bad. Um, anyway, it's a Pixar movie, so it's animated. Uh, the premise of the movie is, you know, Marlin, who's a clownfish, loses his son. Uh, he gets taken. His son Nemo gets taken by divers, so he has to go find him. He has to make his way to Sydney. He journeys through the ocean. Along the way, he picks up a companion, a dory. And there's, the scene is where they are, they're lost. They're in the ocean, they're middle ocean, they don't know where they're going. They've already gone through a lot of challenges and they've overcome them. And so in the distance, there's the shadow, and it's a whale. And uh, Dory claims that she can speak whale and is asking for directions. And so she does, and they end up being swallowed by the whale. And so in this scene, they're inside the whale's mouth, and it cuts in, and you see Dory is just like, this is fun, in the whale's mouth, going along with with the tide. 
And then, then you see Marlin. He, he's like freaking out. You know, he's frustrated. He's swimming full speed, running into the uh, the bristle teeth of the whale. Uh, the my, my wife informed me that is called the, the baleen. Right? Didn't think you would learn that today. Uh, so he's running. He's swimming over and over again, fast as he can, running to the the baleen, um, and you know, like it's crazy. He, he went. He's a tiny fish. He would. What he could do it a thousand times. He wouldn't do anything. You know, he's just frustrated. You know, after all, it's understandable. He'd risk his life. He lost. You know, he doesn't know where his son is, and they, he's expended so much energy and, and has overcome so much, and he ends up in this situation where he he has absolutely nothing left, no options. And so the only thing he's left to do is just swim into running into something over and over. And so fast forward a little bit. Uh, Dory, who uh, hears from the whale that it's time to go into the back of the whale's mouth, or the, the back of the throat of the whale. And Marlin, hearing this, fights her the whole way, claiming that Dory is misunderstanding. You cannot speak whale. And, he has, and she's misunderstood, and he is for sure that they are about to be eaten. And as the water drains out, Marlin's hanging on for dear life, uh, doing everything he can to not go to the back of the whale's throat. And that's when you know, they're hanging on, and Dory says, uh, and Dory tells Marlin, it's time to let go. It's time to let go. And Marlin says, well, how do you know something bad isn't going to happen? And Dory responds, I don't. And she lets go. I thought that was, uh, I thought it was interesting. You know, Dory could have said, like, uh, no, nothing bad is going to happen. Like, we're going to be fine. You know, just, just like, oh, it's fine. But she said, I don't. I don't know, if, I don't know what's going to happen. But she, but she lets go. And so I think, uh, you know, living in this time, in this place, in America, uh, we live in a first world developed country. There are more, there are many opportunities for us to control the outcome of our life. Uh, we, it's ingrained in us, you know, we, we have all the tools, we have the avenues needed to create a life that's healthy, prosperous, and happy. And we encounter, and when we encounter the potential for uh, loss or we lose these tools, we, we lose these ways by which we can control outcomes, and we can uh, bring about good things and, and, and uh, avoid the bad, we worry. You know, I, I think that's why you, know, you look at inflation and everyone, everyone's so stressed out about it. You know, it so shows that in the, poll, in the poll, because it is affecting our, our, the way our life, things that we can control. And so as Christians, as citizens of heaven, as this uh, series is, is called, God calls us to another path. Uh, it's not a, a path about grabbing whatever control we can to make sure something bad doesn't happen, but it's to let go. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when we do that, we are letting go. So it turns out Dory could speak well, and uh, 
you know, she was interpreting what the whale was saying right the whole time, and, and what the whale was doing was telling him to go to the back of her throat so, so he could spew it out of their blowhole, uh, uh, the whale's blowhole. And so they had actually arrived where they wanted to go, and, uh, and the whale was just transporting them the whole time. So, good ending. And that's what happens when we, when we present our request to God, right? We have happy endings. Uh, you know, sometimes. But uh, no, let, let's look at verse 7. It continues on. <clears throat> verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So upon hearing the word peace, what came to mind for the audience, or for the readers in the church in Philippi, no doubt was Pax Romana. And so when we first started studying Philippians, it was very helpful for me uh, to hear you know, kind of the background of, of the book and the letter and, and where Paul was writing from and, and the, uh, the background, the circumstances surrounding the founding of the church. And so we learned that Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, it was a place, it was like little Rome. And it existed as an outpost to spread Roman culture and all that was good and right about the Roman Empire. And so during the time of this letter, uh, Rome was under Caesar Augustus, and he was busy. And he was expanding the empire. He was conquering countries and, and making it bigger, increasing economic prosperity. Uh, there was innovations and city building. And so all these things... Were, uh, was Rome's way of bringing about peace, peace to the known world. Uh, and so there's no, there's no doubt that many readers who heard the peace, heard that word peace, were thinking of that. And, and I think Paul was, was drawing on that. He's comparing it. You know, what is, there, what is our understanding of peace in the world? For them, it was Rome and Caesar. Uh, Rome would bring peace through power and might. And Paul is saying that there is something that is greater than that. In John 14, 27, let me put it up. Jesus, words of Jesus, says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, uh, you know, what is the peace that the world gives that Jesus is saying here? Not as the world gives do I give you. So a famous man once said, peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. That famous man was Tony Stark. Uh, he's Iron Man. He's quoting his father, Howard Stark, neither of whom are real people. Uh, they're, they're comic book characters. But uh, it's kind of a funny saying, you know, how far off is that, like, when it comes to the peace that the world gives, right? You know, peace comes from power and might, like Rome. Peace comes from uh, economic prosperity and security. You know, if, any, if everyone be, would be prosperous economically, we would be free from worry. Peace comes from freedom, you know, freedom from any restrictions or person or God telling you what to do or how to live. And uh, peace comes from comfort and security, and a lack of suffering. And the problem with all of that is that peace attained in those ways are either temporary, fleeting, incomplete, or unrealistic. 
the peace that surpasses understanding is a peace that is present and accessible even if those sources of peace fail us or fall short. Later on in John uh, 33, Jesus uh, talks about this again. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus uh, gave it to us straight. He was honest. In this world you will have tribulation. There's no getting around it. Uh, but as, as he promised, we can take heart. You know, because you know, after he said these words, it was not long later where he was betrayed, he was arrested, he was tried, he was crucified on the cross. And all that for the forgiveness of sins for the world. And after that, he would conquer death itself. So that's what he's saying. Um, you know, we have peace because Jesus has overcome the world. He has overcome death. And so what's promised when we pray, when we bring, earnestly bring our request to God, is not resolution. The promise is not the best possible outcome or even a better outcome than what we're hoping for. What's promised here when we go before the Lord is peace. And it's a peace that's in the moment, and it's a peace that is there and offered to us in the midst of suffering tribulation and difficulties. And finally, we see uh, in the verse that, you know, the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You think about, you know, guarding, you know, what, what, why does something need to be guarded? I'm an, I'm an assistant coach for my son's soccer team, so he's eight. We're uh, learning a lot of the basics, and one of the things is guarding the other team's players. And so guarding them, it's preventative. It is uh, to keep a close eye on the other players, to keep them from getting the ball, to keep the other team from scoring a goal. And so we're, we're preventing them from doing something. And so I love that picture, that the peace of God that God promises us is to guard our hearts and minds. Uh, it's, it's to guard our hearts and minds from being attacked, for, uh, to being yeah, attacked by anxiety and worry. And so, and to conclude, uh, let's let's do that now. You know, we'll take a few minutes. Uh, we'll take, uh, you know, think about what are you what are you anxious about? What is what is a worry that you currently have, or worries? And then we'll put this verse into action. Uh, with thanksgiving, pray, and earnestly ask God. You know, we, we ask for resolutions. We ask for good outcomes. Uh, we ask for his help. But we also, you know, also pray for God's nearness. Pray for that peace that this verse is talking about that surpasses understanding. And, um, and ask and pray that that peace would guard you from anxiety and worry. So um, uh, I'll put the timer on. Let's take a, a minute and a half, two minutes, and, and let's do that. Let's pray. And then after that, uh, after that time, uh, I'll pray, and we can, uh, we can have communion.